for your word this morning. I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, I pray that the distractions of the past week and the distractions of the week to come would just be blocked from our mind in order that we could focus for the next little while on your word. Lord, that we would hear from you. Father, it's my desire that I would shrink back to you would shine forth and what was John the Baptist said, I must decrease, but you must increase. Father, I pray that would be true this morning. Lord, that the words that the hearers would hear would be your words and not mine. We ask these things in Christ's name. Have you ever used the phrase, do as I say, not as I do? It's basically a phrase that means I'm going to tell you what to do, but then I'm going to tell you the proper way to act, the proper way to live, but you're not going to see me live it out. That's basically what you're saying, do as I say, not as I do. So instead of following my example, listen to my words. This gets really confusing for people. And what's worse is you end up becoming a walking contradiction. You say you believe one way, but your life and your actions tell a different story. Now sometimes this contradiction really isn't all that important. If you're a parent, you probably understand this. How many of you have ever told your children, no, you can't have ice cream for, for a bedtime snack because of the heat goes up? Have you ever said that? How many of you have then come downstairs and had ice cream as a bedtime snack? So, my wife at least has to raise her hand because we've shared a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> or you tell your kids how important it is to drink water because it's so healthy and your body needs it only to realize that as you look back over your day, you don't drink much water at all. That's a struggle that I have. Or here's one. How about how much time you spend on your phones? How much are you paying attention to how often you're looking at your phone or a tablet in a room when your family and friends are around? But then you tell everyone that quality time with family and friends is important to you. I've got three pictures I want you to look at, and I found this interesting. It was kind of weird when I first saw it. There was an artist or a photographer who took the pictures that are behind me, and he photoshopped the screens out of them. So this is a picture of a family sitting around a dinner table, dad leaning against the counter. Everyone's looking at a phone, but the artist took the phones out of the picture. Or how about the next one, a couple sitting on a couch, spending quality time together, glued to their screens. Or four girlfriends in a garage, spending time together, but looking at their screens. Now, I'm not against technology, okay? I have a smartphone in my pocket, I have an Apple Watch, I have a computer, I type this up on a computer. I'm not against technology. But what we're going to look at this morning is that our actions are speaking louder than our words. And we're going to see that our actions have a much bigger impact on people than we realize. And sometimes our actions deny the gospel we claim to believe. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Galatians 2. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating and drinking with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, 
fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have been justified and have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. Now Paul begins telling us about an event that happened or that happened after the events that we looked at the last time in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Scripture is not clear on exactly when this happened, but with what I've said through this series, I believe this probably took place in Acts 11, 27 through 30. No, sorry, at Acts 14, 24 through 28. This is right before the Jerusalem Council. This is after Paul and Barnabas took the offering up to Jerusalem and had the conversation with the apostles that we looked at in Acts or in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So Paul starts his comment with the word, or his, his sentence with the word, but. Because if you remember back to Galatians 2, Peter had stood beside Paul and the other apostles and said, the Gentile believers don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to become a Jew in order to be saved. They can remain Gentiles. They can remain uncircumcised. They don't need to follow our Jewish customs. And then Paul stumbles upon Peter in Antioch, and he runs across them doing this. So before we look at this whole passage, I want us to key in on one verse and kind of keep it central in our minds the whole way through this message, and that's verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. When I read that sentence, when I read what Paul says there, that leads me to believe that the gospel is more than just the words that we need to be saved by. The gospel means to dictate how we live our lives. It's not just believe in Christ Jesus and you will be saved, which it certainly is that. But because of the gospel, because of Christ leaving heaven, coming to earth, sacrificing himself for all of humanity, and raising and rising again to new life, that has implications on how we as believers in Christ live our lives and how we interact with believers and non-believers alike. That, I believe, is what Paul summarizes in that one sentence. Their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This truth should shape and mold everything we do as believers. And it is the truth through which we should filter all of our wants, all of our desires, all of our attitudes and feelings. The way we run our businesses, the way we work at our jobs, the way we raise our kids, and anything else that is a part of the human experience. Our doctrine, which is what we believe, is the fuel that feeds the fire of our lives, how we live moment by moment. So with that in mind, we're going to look at this confrontation, and then we're going to look and see how it applies to us today. The first thing that we want to see is that when our actions don't line up with the truth of the gospel, we stand condemned before God. That's how Paul starts his discourse here, and the reason that he contradicts Peter. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face 
because he was being unkind. Is that what he says? Because he wasn't treating his Gentile believers nicely. No. He stood condemned before God. Breaking the law of God, not loving his neighbor as himself. That's the reason that Paul confronts Peter. Not because he was being unkind. He does this, and by doing this, he denies the gospel that he preaches and he teaches. See, Peter believed that you were justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But when it came to eating with the Gentiles, as we're going to see when these people from James, these false teachers came down from Jerusalem, he shrinks back. He pulls back from them. He pulls back from eating with the Gentiles. But what eating to a Jew... And even a believing Jew meant was he was having fellowship with them, but to a Jew, a table fellowship was more than just sitting down and having a good meal, having a nice meal. It was about a common fellowship with God. One commentator I read says that in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Does that shed any light on communion for you? So what Peter's doing here is he's eating with Gentiles, but he is signifying more than just sharing a meal. He is signifying that he believes that the Gentiles had been granted repentance. And this is exactly what God had shown him in a vision in Acts 10. Remember when Peter sees the sheep lowered down from heaven with all of the unclean animals to him and and Jesus says, take and eat. And Peter says, absolutely not. I've never put anything wrong in my body. And God says, don't call unclean what God's called clean. And then Acts 11, he reports to the church, and he said that he realizes that that vision meant that the Gentiles had been granted repentance. He saw it three times. That's what he knew it to mean. That's the report of the vision in Acts 10 that he gives to the church in Acts 11. At the Jerusalem Council later, it's the exact same vision that Peter tells the church. And he says, this is why we can't circumcise the Jews, or the Gentiles. Because it's not becoming a Christian. It is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in the one that justifies you. So what changed? What caused Peter from Galatians 2, 1 through 10 to be standing with the apostles and to be standing with the church as a whole? saying, no, Gentiles don't need to become Jews. So this encounter with the false teachers of the Gentiles, to Peter shrinking back. What caused him to flip-flop like that? The end of verse 12, it's fear. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. Peter became afraid of what these religious teachers from Jerusalem were going to say about him. He was afraid of the perception they were going to have of him. And this isn't the healthy fear of Psalms 111 that says the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. That's not that fear. This is the fear of man which lays a snare, Proverbs 29-25. And look at how big this snare is that Peter casts. It's not just Peter who acts hypocritically. In verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. Even Barnabas was led astray. Paul says, so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, Paul's traveling companion, 
was led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. Peter had influence in the church. People were watching him so much so that even people who knew what Peter truly believed were led astray by his actions and by his hypocrisy. Can you now see how important it is that our life lines up with our doctrine? People are watching you. You are the only Jesus some people will see. You are the only Bible that some people will read. Are you saying one thing with your mouth, but showing and living another thing with your actions and with your life? I think now, more than ever, probably, people are waiting for our actions to deny our message. We live in a world that is very hostile, very post-Christian, very anti-Christian, and they are waiting for every single person to slip. They're waiting for us to act as hypocrites. Are they watching you and seeing a hypocrite, or are they seeing a genuine believer in Christ who lives out his or her doctrine day by day, regardless of the cause? <coughs> so we see that Peter acts hypocrisy, but I want to look a little bit about what this hypocrisy actually is. What is it to act hypocritically? Todd Wilson, in his uh, commentary on Galatians, preaching the word, gospel rooted living, says, When it comes to understanding hypocrisy, we're actually helped by the history of the word. In antiquity, a hypocrite was an actor. It was someone who would put on a mask and play a part in a performance. Thus the word came to to connotate the concealing of one's true character, thought, or feelings under a guise, implying something different. When you act hypocritically, you mask your true conviction and play a part that's really not you. Peter acted hypocritically by concealing the fact that he believed that Jews were partakers of Christ when he drew back and didn't eat with them. He did believe that they were dead. The Gentile believers were justified by faith alone. The false teachers did it. See, they were saying, as we've seen throughout this letter, you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Peter didn't believe that. But yet that's not what he signified with his actions when he shrunk back from the table. He covered over his true convictions for one that would appeal to and appease this group from Jerusalem. He didn't want to be made fun of. He didn't want to be harassed. He didn't want to be part of the ones that these false teachers were questioning. So instead of living out his true convictions, he steps back out of fear. He was denying them fellowship by his actions because they weren't circumcised and possibly because the food they were eating was not kosher. But Paul says that Peter himself was not living like a Jew. That's what he says at the end of verse 14. He was no longer following the food customs and the ritual cleanliness customs, but he was adding to the truth by his actions that one is justified by faith alone, by not doing the things, and not doing by the things that we do and don't do. That's what his actions signify. I believe this is why Paul launches into the gospel message once again. In Galatians 2, 15, 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
So Paul catches Peter in a gospel contradiction, and what does he do? He preaches the gospel to him again. He preaches the gospel to Peter so that Peter can see that even the Jews are not justified by their circumcision and by their rituals. That's what he means when he says that we also have believed in Christ. He's talking to himself and to Peter and to all the other Jews. He says, look, we've lived our lives according to this, and even we have to submit to Christ. Even we have to accept Christ by faith in our lives. We're not justified by what we've done for the past however many years. We needed to be justified by faith in Christ, just as our Gentile believers. He preaches the gospel to show Peter that by acting hypocritically and denying fellowship to the Gentiles, he is in fact adding to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And by doing so, he denies the very gospel that he claims to believe. So here's my question for all of us to think about. Does the fear of man produce in you or in us hypocritical actions? Are you the same person here Sunday mornings as you are Monday mornings at work? Regardless of who's around, or do your beliefs, your attitudes, and your actions change depending on the group that you're with? And this can even happen with inside the church. Wanting to fit in and wanting to be liked is normal for people. Nobody wants to be made fun of. Nobody wants to be picked on. Nobody wants to be ridiculed. Nobody wants to be marginalized. But the reality is, as Christians, we will be. Jesus tells us as much in John 15, 18, 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember that I, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If you truly live out your convictions day by day, inside the church and even outside the church, you can bet your bottom dollar that you will be ridiculed and marginalized. It's going to happen. So the question is, does the fear of man produce in you the hypocrisy that it produced in Peter? Or does the fear of God give you the conviction to stand in your convictions? Jesus is preparing us in that verse in John to be persecuted and suffer for our faith. And know that the closer you are living out biblical Christianity, the more the world is going to hate and despise you. How about do we stand up for our brothers and sisters in Christ and others talk bad about them behind their backs for whatever reason that may be? Or do we stand quietly by, or worse yet, even join in? Do we teach and proclaim that individuals are justified by faith alone, but then add stipulations and standards to what people do and don't do in order to fit in with us? It doesn't even need to be a fellow believer. That's what was happening with Peter here. He was with fellow believers that he was shrinking back from, saying, you're not quite good enough. Are we willing to withstand the ridicule and the mockery for standing with the least of these, the untouchables, and the one that society has cast aside as useless? Or will we deny the gospel truth that all of human life has dignity and worth because every human being has been made in the image of God? 
by casting them aside. I believe that how we answer these questions determines whether or not we are living a gospel-affirming life or a gospel-denying life. And one thing I want us all to seriously think about, it's a big issue that we as a church are going to need to come to grips with, it is an issue that no institution can overlook in our day and age. We are not dealing right now with circumcision, obviously. In the 21st century, we are dealing with the issue of homosexuality. And how much are we willing to suffer to stay true to God in the Bible? Like I said, unlike Paul and Peter, we're not dealing with circumcision or food laws, but if you haven't noticed, there's a huge sexual revolution going on in the world around us, and everyone is going to be called to make an account for what they believe. The right side is that homosexuality is a sin, and that it will cause individuals to be separated from God and for all eternity. But not just homosexuality, we have lost the sin that is inherent in the world that is needed for the gospel to be good news. So are we like Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 going to preach that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the violence, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Are we going to preach that message along with the message that's such for some of us that Paul continues in verse 11? See, Christianity doesn't just doesn't condemn us for our sins. Christianity says you're a sinner, so we have a Savior that we all need. Every single one of us. So are we going to be a church that condemns homosexuality? We're going to be a church that stands and points the finger at the homosexual and says, you're not good enough, you're not clean enough. Or are we going to be a church that says, yes, we believe homosexuality is a sin, but we have an answer. We have a Jesus who came from heaven, who took on sinful flesh, didn't sin, but he took on flesh. He lived the life that we did, perfect sacrifice, ridiculed for being perfect, hung on the cross when the Bible says he did no wrong. They keep reading in that passage I read in um, John 15, he says they hated him for no reason. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Are we living a true gospel-centered life by being able to say that some of those among us at one point in time committed the sin of homosexuality? That at one point in time those among us were idolaters, they were adulterers, they were greedy, they were swindlers. But we've been washed. Or are we going to only bring in those who look like us. We're only going to fellowship with those believers who dress like us and talk like us and are good Christian folk like us. Which is the second question that needs to be answered. Do we believe, as Peter, as Paul says in verse 15, 
that we are in need of a Savior just as much as someone who didn't grow up in the church. See, verse 15, we could easily say we ourselves grew up in the church and we're not worldly sinners. We could easily say that for verse 15. But do we believe the most offensive part of the gospel and the truth is that there is not one individual who is righteous before God and that we all need faith in Christ that we will not stand before God on our own merit but it is only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us given to us as a gift that we stand that we can stand Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Are we churchgoers any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. To believe that you will one day stand before God on some merit of your own is to deny the gospel. And it is to stand condemned. But if you go back to Romans and keep reading Romans 3, you see that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. This is all meant to be an encouragement. You realize justification by faith alone is meant to be an encouragement. You don't have to strive to be good before God because you can't. That should be an encouragement to us. Stop beating yourself up. There's days I struggle with this. I lose sight of this. We all lose sight of this. We sin. We're going to sin. We're sinners. That's what we do. But we're sinners who have been saved by grace. Justification by faith alone is an encouragement. This is why God, the gospel, is called good news. You can't have good news without bad news. There is no good news without the bad news. And the bad news is that apart from Christ, we stand condemned before a holy and righteous God, and he is just to send us to hell. But the good news is that Jesus Christ left his throne in heaven, took on flesh, became a baby, lived a perfect life, was spit on, mocked, ridiculed, hung on a cross, stripped naked, buried in a tomb, rose three days later, ascended, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. If you believe that and you accept Christ, the righteousness of him, by faith, Christ's job as the intercessor is to sit beside God the Father and say, no, Father, not that one. He's mine. She's mine. I paid her debt. She's justified. So maybe you're here this morning as I'm preaching this, the Lord's revealed to you some hypocritical tendencies in your life. Maybe your actions and your attitudes you have towards others, or maybe you've been thinking that you're better than someone else because of your upbringing. Like I said, don't beat yourself up, but recognize that it is a sinful tendency that denies the gospel. And if you continue in it, you stand condemned. Humble yourself. Come to Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've been sinning against you. I need you to cleanse me. And he will. God tells us in 1 John that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
consequences from all unrighteousness. But you have to confess your sins first. It's if we confess our sins. You can't live a little perfect life before God, which is why Christ had to come in the first place. It's Christmas time, I realize this isn't really an Advent message. But I believe all those scripture points to Christ. I should be able to preach a Christmas message in the middle of July. Because all of scripture hinges on the fact that Jesus Christ came, was buried, and rose again. But maybe you're here this morning and you've never experienced the saving power of God through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're worried that people are going to think you're weak because you need someone to save us. This is the sin of pride, and guess what? We're all weak. We all need someone to save us. I don't stand up here in the Bible power of people, believe me. Saturday nights are miserable. No one is going to look down on you as if they, and if they do, their actions would just be just would just be denying the gospel they themselves need. So listen today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For today is the day of salvation. <clears throat> And if praying for Ron this morning tells us nothing, it at least tells us that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, I've done all I can do to present the truth of your word to the hearers this morning. Holy Spirit, I now ask that you take the truth of this word to their hearts and their people, that the chains of bondage to sin, hypocrisy, and the fear of the man would be loosed, that they would be conformed more and more to the likeness of your son. Lord, I pray that whatever pride is present,